I'm J.P. Tuesday. And I'm Kiki Cannon. As lifelong Disney fans, the work of countless talented Disney creatives have shaped our lives. Now, as the Disney catalog expands, we're taking a journey through film and television to discover if that spark that shaped us as children lives on in adulthood. Does your favorite Disney media still cast that same spell? Join us as we find out. We are Rewatching the Magic. Hi, Kiki. Hi, Tuesday. And here we are. Here we are. The grand finale of Disaster Month. I'm over it. (laughs) So, how are we going to end Disaster Month? We've had the tsunami. We've had the burning building. We've had asteroids from space. And we probably have the most realistic and greatest villain to the planet. Climate change. I mean, you say realistic. <laughs> I mean, These, cli- climate change is realistic. This movie is not. Let's let's get that. Let's get that. Climate change real. What happens in this movie? Not real. Let's let's put that out there. We are talking about the day after tomorrow, the 2004 film by Roland Emmerich, the guy that directed the crappy Godzilla movie. Ah, Roland. Roland, Roland, Roland. We meet at last. For the first time, but probably not for the last time. And Roland Emmerich is not above putting his own personal views in his movies. After all, he made the mayor in the Godzilla movie, Roger Ebert, because Roger Ebert doesn't like his movies. I mean, does anybody really like a Roland Emmerich movie? Says the woman with a Stargate tattoo on her leg. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just putting that out there. You know, I I do. I, I don't have a I don't have a Stargate tattoo because I like Roland Emmerich. I have a Stargate tattoo because I am a linguist and James Spader is hot. But yeah, I've. Oh, Roland. Um, yeah, no, Roland Emmerich is, whew, how to describe Roland Emmerich? Roland Emmerich is a man who has never met a conspiracy theory he did not like. Pretty much every one of his films, including the historical films he's done, because he's done a few, have some kind of weird slant to them that goes into the conspiratorial or slightly odd I mean like I said I love Stargate but it's all like you know what if pyramids were built by aliens even even God Godzilla it gets there's you know the the weird little bits in there where you know you have the the strange scientists and the bad science and everything which is weird for a film series that already starts out with kind of the dubious science of what if radiation could make giant lizards you know 
I mean, not long after this, he does the movie 2012, which already went into another, which goes into another conspiracy theory about that being the end of the world. And then he did what is probably the most personally offensive movie to to me as as a human being, uh, which was his movie Anonymous about uh, the authorship question of Shakespeare. He sides with the uh, he's in what they call an anti-Stratfordian, which is that uh, Shakespeare could not have possibly written the plays of Shakespeare, uh, which if you believe that. Stop listening to my podcast. I hate you, and I I never, ever want to speak to you. Yeah. In which you discover that Roland Emmerich thinks that the Tudor rose, which was a heraldic symbol that combined uh, the white rose and the red rose, which were on opposite sides of the English Civil War. One side used a red heraldic rose. One side used a white heraldic rose. He apparently thinks that the Tudor rose is a thing you can grow in the actual ground. I I cannot explain to you. Like this is like thinking that like the the Welsh dragon from their flag is a real creature, or or like a a unicorn or a you know that that kind of thing. It's like it's like coming across somebody who's like, no, I really do think mermaids are real. You know, it's like <laughs> I saw one. <laughs> okay, okay, precious. All right, you know, go go plant me one in your garden and bring it to me, and then I will. Uh, all right, but you know, he doesn't understand uh, botany either as well as uh, any other form of science. All right, you you go, Roland. So anyway. Um, as a person with a with an English degree who uh, likes heraldry uh, and medieval studies and Shakespeare, uh, that movie offended me on like several different levels. I was constantly surprised by it. Uh, anyway, Roland Emmerich decides he's going to take on climate change in this one. Back when it was called global warming. Yeah, and. Of course, that leads to the thing in the movie of, like, how can global warming cause an ice age? Which is kind of why we've moved to calling it climate change now, because that's what people kept saying. They didn't understand that things like, you know... Massive snowstorms and stuff like that could be part of the general warming trend of the the climate. This film is correct in the fact of, yes, climate change is a problem. Yes, we should do something about it. Yes, extreme weather events are a, a growing problem, even as we sit here recording this. However, as many climate scientists and atmospheric scientists and regular scientists and people who have been through high school science have pointed out um, this isn't the way things work, but it does make for fun images on a screen. (laughs) You know? I mean, of all of the disaster movies we've talked about, like I said, this is something that could happen 
Could it happen within our lifetime? It is happening within our lifetime. Where where I live, which is right in the middle of Hurricane Central, my first job out of high school was working in a warehouse that stored and stored tobacco and managed the auctions of tobacco for cigarette companies and cigar companies and things like that. Um, I live in a very highly ag- agricultural area. Agriculture is most of what we do. We grow a variety of crops, one of which is tobacco. You need somewhere to cure it, to store it, to auction it. I worked in there as data entry. Okay. I worked there during a year that was considered one of the worst years due to hurricanes that they had seen in anybody's recorded lifetime. It absolutely wrecked tobacco tobacco production throughout the, the area. Just recently, within the last year or so, I began to wonder how that year stacked up with the hurricanes we've been seeing lately because I don't know if people who live outside of hurricane-affected areas understand this, but in the part of the U.S. where hurricanes really are an issue, um, we have begun to understand how bad this has gotten in the fact of when I was a kid, you would maybe in a bad year make it up to the letter H in the in the hurricane name registry. Now we are getting to the point where we have gotten through all of the letters in the name registry and into the backup name registry. And that is typical now in a year. So many hurricanes are forming. We are also seeing year after year higher category hurricanes every year. We would see like a lot of tropical storms. Maybe they would turn into category one or category two. Now it is very common to see more and more category three, category four, even category five hurricanes. Uh, when I was a kid, a Category 5 hurricane was extremely rare. You would see them, you know, once every several years. Um, and they might form out in the Atlantic and never even hit land. To actually have them hit land was extremely rare and massively devastating. And now they are happening with higher frequency that you will get something hit land that is category three or above. Every year that I looked up since that horribly devastating year that I worked in the tobacco warehouse, every single hurricane season, every single year, and that was roughly 20 years ago, has been worse than that highly devastating season I worked in the tobacco warehouse. Every year has been worse. And now that's become the normal. That's just hurricanes. 
um, in my area. The day before we're recording this, a major news outlet just ran a story about farmers in my area and how they are able to grow crops that would have, you know, 10 years ago been only able to be grown several hundred miles south of where I am. And because of warming trends, they are now able to grow them in my region. One of our staple crops may not be able to be grown in this region because it no longer gets cold enough to provide the characteristic yearly cold snap that the crop needs to propagate itself for the next season anymore. Everything is moving kind of northward as far as crop production because everything is getting too warm to be grown. You know, it's it's happening. It's just not happening on a Roland Emmerich big budget scale. Because the way it's happening in real life doesn't make it for a good movie. You got to expand. You got to turn it up to one million and then we have the entire world freezing at once. Yeah, it's it's not as, you know, having a farmer sit there and tell you, hey, I wasn't able to grow this kind of, you know, a fruit or vegetable here because the climate was too cold and now I can grow it here isn't really as compelling as showing a shot of, you know, the Statue of Liberty covered in ice and being like, behold, climate change. But that's what it is, you know. But honestly, look at the devastation in Florida just in the last few months as of time of recording um, and time that you will be hearing this. We've just had two hurricanes in the last two to three months that have leveled parts of Florida, as in taken out 90% of actual towns in Florida. They're, they're not there anymore. You can look at satellite photos from the day before and the day after, ha ha, and 90% of the structures are not standing in that town anymore. And it doesn't even make the news because it's just another hurricane. And two weeks later, another one hit just north of that area. Uh, you can you can say what you want about the science in this being completely incorrect as far as how it happens. And I I will stand up for that yes you know the science in this is is not how it happens but the point behind it of hi you haven't listened to the climate science and now we are having catastrophic weather disasters that are ruining the ability to live in certain places is actually factual we are having horrifically devastating floods we are having horrifically devastating hurricanes we are having larger than usual tornadoes i mean jump on the jump on the other coast the number of wildfires in california has exceptionally 
jumped up. And California is under a permanent drought these days. Yeah, and even going outside of the, the U.S., we have been having massive flooding throughout the the Middle East and India and in parts of Africa and in I mean it's been just absolutely devastating um the horrible heat wave that hit earlier this year throughout the UK and parts of Europe unthinkable a few years ago these things are happening and they are happening with greater frequency and if you listen to the climate scientists they will continue to pick up speed but it's not happening with a big budget special effects extravaganza and 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 that was one of the big criticisms of the movie is that because this was a big budget blockbuster special effects spectacle that people may not take climate change seriously because they see it as a fantastical idea in a movie. And we're kind of stuck in that in real life. I mean, the more as this stuff becomes more and more regular, we're still having the same arguments in 2022, almost 2023, that they're having in this movie in 2004. So it's shown that the powers that be haven't learned a damn thing. Yeah, we're getting preachy with this on this on the, on the podcast. Sorry. <laughs> I'm not sorry. <laughs> Say what you want about Roland Emmerich, and I will. But this is the, the one thing that I, I really will align with him on is the fact that there are some things said in this movie that are correct and serious issues. I will take him to task, though, for where he got the idea for this movie, which is its own kettle of fish. Because, like I said, Roland Emmerich is a man who never met a conspiracy theory he didn't like. And this comes directly from a conspiracy theorist. Uh, specifically a book written by a talk radio host who at the time had a sort of late night uh, AM radio rant show, call-in show uh, called Coast to Coast AM where he would just talk about conspiracy theories and other paranormal things guy named art bell he has passed since he wrote a book with a guy named whitley schreiber called the coming global superstorm it was their idea that climate change um well what they said global warming would shut down the Gulf Stream and the North Atlantic Drift, and that would warm the uh, ice caps at the North Pole, and that would destabilize the salinity of the ocean, and that would cause all kinds of massive storms. Basically, the entire plot of this movie. The thing is, is that Roland Emmerich apparently read this book 
and thought, hey, that'd make for a good movie. And Roland Emmerich pitched this movie in a rather unique way, which is kind of commonplace for him now, to my understanding, um, which is that he wrote up a treatment and he sent it to basically every major studio and said, this is what I'm going to do with my next movie. Do you want to produce it? You have 24 hours to respond. <laughs> apparently, Fox was the only one that responded. But apparently, that's just how he does his movies now, because he's got his own little production company, and then he is like, I I'm going to do this movie, and it's going to be under my production company, and then I need you to handle the financing and the distribution and all that kind of stuff. And then he just basically sends out the script to everybody and goes like, okay, who wants this one? And that's that's how he, he does things, apparently. But this one ended up at Fox, which is how it's ended up on our show. Like every one of these disaster movies we've done so far, this has a... I wonder if they call this an all-star cast? But it's it's a lot of star cast. Yeah, Dennis Quaid is our main lead. He's Dennis Quaid. If I had to tell you who Dennis Quaid is, I'm sorry. Jake yeah. Gyllenhaal? Not exa he wasn't exactly Jake Gyllenhaal then. Well, I mean, he'd he'd already he'd already done a, a bunch of stuff. I mean, he'd already done Donnie Darko. Mm. And he'd already done October Sky, and both of those had been fairly big hits. I mean, not like huge hits, but especially Donnie Darko had already been kind of a, a cult hit. Right, right after this, he'd go he'd go into uh, Brokeback Mountain. The mom is played by Celia Ward. I know her more as a television actor, mostly from CSI. Yeah, I mean, I I knew her more as a as a television actor as well. I kind of remembered her from just her being, you know, bouncing around uh, various uh, shows. I never really watched CSI, but she was in House and, of course, Frasier and stuff. And, you know, she was always in things. But, of course, I think the biggest thing I remember her in, as as far as, like, the big touchstone thing for me was um she was the the wife in the fugitive that mm. Harrison Ford gets you know accused of killing she would work with Roland Emmerich again playing the president in the Independence Day sequel yeah uh Amy Rossum people might know her from from the TV show Shame Shameless I, I will always know her as playing Bulma in the worst Dragon Ball movie ever made, which is owned by Fox, which means this is owned by Disney. <laughs> yeah. The thing is, though, is that she had not really had her, like, her big breakthrough for me until after this. Like, I didn't personally remember her until after this. Um, a lot of people will be like, well, she was in Mystic River, but I never saw that. So, um, you know, I kind of remember her being in that Phantom of the Opera movie. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I didn't like. 
because I don't like uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Come at me. I don't care. I'll fight you on that. Uh, but, you know. Uh, interestingly, though, she was in uh, one of the remakes of Poseidon Adventure. And then um, kind of one of our, our other big names in this, we got uh, Ian Holm. We've, I mean, we've talked about Ian Holm before because, you know, he was in Alien everything. It's kind of funny. We just got got done talking about uh, young Bilbo because we just talked about uh, Martin in our uh, our little uh, Black Panther. Black, Black Panther. Uh, and if you, uh, if you have not listened to it yet, go back into it. It's since it did come out like late in the week. <laughs> yeah. You know, we we mentioned Martin in that, and then uh, we got uh, we got the the older Bilbo, the older Bilbo <laughs> in uh, in this one. So, but yeah, but yeah, but we properly talked about about uh, good old Sir Ian uh, back when we did Alien. So, anyway, he's he's here again, uh, and this this is a huge cast, and it's it's got a lot of people in it. We will not go into all of them directly but yeah that's our that's our our main main cast right there so yeah as as you said uh the point of the movie the plot of the movie is that uh polarized caps are melting putting a lot of uh as they say fresh water into the seawater and it's causing massive change in the in the currents of the water massive storms new ice age there, that's the point here. Everything else, spectacle, because, like, right off the bat, we get hailstorms in Japan, tornadoes in Los Angeles. Yeah, it it starts off smaller, as these things do. We, we got that with Armageddon as well, with the, you know, the, the small little meteorites coming down and and all relatively small compared to the big ones coming down and and destroying you know smaller chunks of the the globe and that's what we get here you know we get the the hailstorms that are oh well that's bigger hail than normal and all that kind of stuff and i don't know if it was intended to be funny or not because the hail starts falling and then there's this one cop that sees it and obviously is mentioning how big it is until another one falls and cracks his head open. Yeah. I mean, that is sort of Roland's humor. I mean, you've you've seen the the other films he's done, mm-hmm. uh at least some of them. And yeah, that 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 was definitely intended as as a form of dark humor. We start getting the the various bits of both the early storms and also the bits of character development. But the first big one, of course, is when we see the ice shelf break away and we get our introduction to Dennis Quaid's character, Jack, when they're drilling for the ice core uh, samples and the ice shelf just suddenly breaks off. And he has to make that daring leap to save the science. <laughs> oh my god, we must save the science, not the science! And even his cohort is saying, that was stupid, why did you do that? Because it's science and we must save it. The The funniest thing, though, is is that, you know, 
he makes the first jump and he barely makes it because the the thing is too big and they're like no you'll never make the jump back and of course he's carrying these giant heavy bits of ice and it's a a huge chasm now and he of course he he makes it or almost makes it and you know he makes it easily and then the ice breaks underneath him and he starts to fall and then just suddenly he magics an ice pick out of nowhere because that is not in his hand when he falls plot you know yeah he just suddenly magics that out of absolute nowhere but you know he he saves the day and he saves the science and they're able to go back and then of course you find out that you know his wife's a doctor and his son's really smart and headed to new york for you know a a, a, science bowl and yeah academic uh, decathlons and all that yeah and there's a nice scene where you know oh you know our, our our super genius son flunked how did our super genius son flunk and then he says, well, I, I told off the teacher because I could do the work in my head and he can't. So your teacher flunked you because you were smarter than him? Yep. And I'll talk to him about that. <laughs> it's a nice well, moment, you know, and kind of shows that he's... It's It doesn't really go anywhere past the fact that we see the ac- academic decathlon for like five seconds. But, it, and, but the whole super genius son doesn't really play into the plot at all. The thing is, though, is that none of that really makes sense because, one, anybody who's ever taken a math class knows that you have to show your work. I am the worst at math, and even I know that. Also, his father is an internationally renowned scientist he would not be like, oh, yeah, no, it's cool that you can just do the work in your head. Like, no, as a scientist, you know that you've got to show your work because even if you can do the work in your head, it needs to be there for peer review. No no scientist worth their salt would be like, yeah, no, no, you need to, you need to have that down on paper so other people can look at, you know? It's like it doesn't matter if you can do it in your head. It's cool that you can do it in your head. The point is having it down on paper so that other people can go back and check your work and also be able to follow your work, learn from your work, replicate your work. That's the point of math and science, not to be able to prove that you're hot stuff and can do it in your head. That's fine, but that's not the point here. Like It's just the fact that his dad's like, I'll talk to your teacher about it. The only thing that you would have talked to the teacher about was I have explained to my son the proper, you know, way of doing math. Could you please allow him to go back and take the test again and do it properly this time so we can teach him the real lesson? I could see that happening. But what we get is the proud papa moment of student tells up teacher and then you get, you know, you get Dennis Cray smiling and say, oh, yeah, that's my boy. Tell him the teacher. I used to do that. <laughs> Which, and I'm going to say this, does prove Roland Emmerich's kind of anti-intellectual streak. Which does show through in a lot of his movies. Because he wants to be in the, like, you have to listen to the scientist. Why aren't you listening to the smart person thing? Which a lot of these movies have. 
we talked about it with the Michael Bay thing too of like are you going to listen to the the smart person or are you not um and it comes up in this movie too where it's like well this movie has a lot of you should have listened to the scientist why didn't you listen to the scientist except that all of these conspiracy theory movies are based on things that only come about because people don't actually listen to the scientists or don't understand the science or don't under or, or don't understand the scientists because it's like immediately they're like well what if but what if the the ice shelf cracked off into the ocean and made there less salt and then the scientist goes well we've already modeled that and we know exactly what would happen in that scenario and it wouldn't be as extreme as you think and then you know the the conspiracy theorists go yeah but what if it did anyway because i think it would you know and then it's like well but you didn't listen to the scientist you know the scientist has gone through this they have models they can tell you they can talk you through it Maybe you don't understand it, but they've been to school for this. They've run calculations on it. They've run it through computer modeling. We kind of we kind of know how likely this is and what the, you know. But that's boring. I want exciting. Yeah, and then it's like, but what if happened anyway? Like, okay, it's cool to think about the, like, but maybe what if. But the problem is, like, yeah, but the... the the models are kind of doing the thing so far that the scientists have told us they would. They've kind of proven right so far, so maybe we should just listen to the scientist instead of the conspiracy theorist. Roland? Roland? How about that, Roland? <laughs> you want to do that? No? You want to make the movie instead with the crazy Ice Age thing? Okay, alright. We'll do that. Do that instead. Alright. So yeah, so the fact that the that his like scientist guy would do that is kind of the the like yeah you show him you're a smarty you do it all in your head you don't have to prove your work you know better is kind of the the weird anti intellectual conspiracy theorist bit showing like you said Roland puts his his ideas on the screen so it feels like he wanted to do a disaster movie with the heart being this father-son story and just needed a disaster and then just happened to come across that book. All of his films are are like that. I mean, it's like that in Independence Day. It's like that in most of his other films where he's got this idea of you won't, and and he's not wrong because all disaster movies do this. We we talked about this in Towering Inferno. We talked about this in Poseidon Adventure of the, you know, zeroing in on the characters you care about. So I'm not saying this is a Roland Emmerich problem. Um, but the idea of the disaster movie is you're not really going to care about all the people that are in danger if you don't have a focus character of like oh no but i hope that person isn't in danger okay but what about the you know millions of other people that are in danger okay but as long as Liv tyler is okay that's all we care about okay but you don't care about the the earth maybe blowing up that's where you keep your stuff 
like, no, Liv Tyler has to be okay. You know, it's like we need to care about the person play, being played by the highest fame celebrity. Yeah, it's it's like that. That's the that's the issue. You have to you have to have one person you care about to save the world for. You know, there's so that's one, that's why they're they're doing that. There's one moment here that is a too real, but also feels like a commentary is. The tornadoes are happening in L.A. and there's a bunch of people with camcorders recording it. Like if this was made just a few years later, everyone would be having their iPhones out, filming it, putting it on social media. And, you know, they would in real life. And you know what? I hate when they do that commentary. Like, what are you doing here? Get out of here. The storm's coming. But there are people who would do that. I'm out. Am I wrong? And. And you know what I'm going to say, though, is, but but why do we consider that such a horrific thing? Yes, sometimes for the, the average person, okay? You know, like I said, I live in Hurricane Central. What happens when a hurricane's coming? All the people drive, you know, one way because they're evacuating. But who's going the other way? All the Weather Channel people. And they're always standing there, waist deep in water, being like, well, the wind's really high right now, Chet. I don't know about you, but the, like, oh, and there just goes a tree limb, you know? And you're always kind of thinking, like, I mean, do we really need to see it? But in some ways, yeah, we kind of do really need to see it. Think about all of the things that we have Thanks to this technology where we're like, we know what was going on at that time. And usually, I'm not saying all the time, but usually people will only film, most people will only film a relatively safe enough distance for them, you know? People overestimate, like, how... Many people, you know, would like stay and keep filming and, you know, all that kind of stuff Um, because we have real life instances to take from. Have people died doing that? Yes, it does happen. It does. But it is a smaller statistic than people think. And people like to make fun of it because like, oh, look at that person and how ridiculous they were, you know. A lot of people, once they get to a bit of a safer distance, will turn around and document for others to know what happened. Um, but the fact that that these movies keep showing, like, and here are all these idiot people standing there two feet away from a tornado, you know. No, I mean, probably not what would happen in that scenario. How do we know that? Because we have places where tornadoes happen with relative frequency. And people do not tend to stay in that situation and do that. You know, they tend to get to a safer distance and then turn their camera on it. So I think that this is another bit when it shows up in movies like this. It it to me always feels like another bit of like, Look at my superiority to these people. But it's always the news person commenting on it. 
And my thought is, but my dude, you are also a person with with a camera standing in that spot. But doing this is the exact my job same thing. to do it. And the only difference between yeah. them and you is that they are documenting it without a capitalistic motive. And that is supposed to make you better than them, I guess. And and that always just makes me feel gross about that commentary. I want to go to this thread. I've mentioned this earlier where uh, Roland Emmerich will put his politics on his sleeve. As, as, as I said, in, in, in Godzilla, he made the mayor Roger Ebert, and he looks like Roger Ebert, and his assistant looks like Gene Siskel. And they do the whole thumbs up thing. In this movie, we have the president and the vice president, and they are so looking like Dick Cheney and George W. Bush. It's on. It's the it, the there is no subtlety here. Uh, we have Kenneth Welsh as the vice president and Perry King as the president, and yeah, it is very obvious that they're supposed to look like and kind of be. Dick Cheney and, and and George W. Bush. Oh, and and Roland said at the time, oh yeah, no, that's exactly like he's never denied any of it when when they were like, is that supposed to be Siskel and Ebert? He was like, oh yeah, you betcha. <laughs> so it's like exactly supposed to be Siskel and Ebert. Um, and uh, when people were like, is that supposed to be Bush and Cheney? He was like, oh oh, absolutely, absolutely, it was supposed to be Bush and Cheney. And then people were like, why did you destroy New York? Like, you could have picked a different city. There's lots of cities in the in the northeast, even, or in the north. Like, why didn't you pick, you know, Chicago? That's a frosty city in the north of, you know, or why didn't you pick Detroit? Or why didn't you pick Minneapolis? You know, yeah. Minneapolis? Or why didn't you pick Seattle? Or why Jersey. didn't you pick, you know, <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you pick just anywhere else that has like relatively tall buildings and landmarks and whatever that's north of that line? You could have even picked DC because DC is north of that line, you know, it's like, and he was like, because this was not that long after 9 11. You know, only, it's 2004. A, yeah, yeah, only a few years. And he was like, well, you know, I wanted to talk about people coming together after a big disaster and talk about unity and talk about how we need to, you know, which I find kind of a cop out because they don't really talk about that in this movie. We have the moments of small groups of people coming together, but like. There's that moment where we have a lot of people in the in the New York Public Library. The first chance they get when they see people walking, hey, they're going south, we should go with them, they bolt. Now, granted, they all die because of hypothermia, but it's not exactly the moment of unity he says it is. But even if it's like, you know, after a disaster and let's take care of people and stuff... They're not really shown taking care of each other or helping each other or, you know, like at best, they all flee into a place together and just kind of look around and go like, well, what now? You know, which is not really the same thing, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, to go to go backwards to what I was saying earlier, um, so we have that moment at the UN, I think it's I think it's supposed to be the UN, where 
where Dennis Quaid is saying his thing, hey, this is going to happen. It's going to be bigger and it's going to keep on happening. And then we have our, our, our Dick Cheney stand and said, yeah, we could do something about climate change. But who's going to pay for it? Where's the economic value in all of that? Which is an argument that's still happening to this day. Which is kind of my point about bringing all of that up in the first place. And honestly, that's the one thing I kind of agree with in this film is when when he says, hey, our, our climate's very fragile. And the the Dick Cheney stand-in goes like, well, in fairness, our economy is very fragile, too. <laughs> I mean, and, we just and, had a thing of three years ago of the same thing. Well, we could do something about this virus, or we could just open the economy back up again and force people back to work. Yeah. It's the thing of, you're not wrong at the basis of what you're trying to say i just take issue with how you're going about trying to get your message across i agree with the desire for the urgency in the movie you know this is coming and it's coming faster than we want to to admit because the uh the scientists keep having to revise their models because it's speeding up faster than than they originally predicted. Yeah, it, it goes from years to weeks to, to days. days. Yeah. yeah. Um, and at first, you know, he's he's standing there talking to the the Dick Cheney clone in a climate conference, and he's saying, you know, hey, we just had a a massive ice shelf break off and this could mean that in a few years you know but our our children and grandchildren are going to pay for this and, and we need to do something about it uh starting now and then he gets back and there's already by the time he walks outside there's weird weather occurring you know and by the time he gets back to the u.s there's more weird weather and they're thinking like oh no it's it's going to be within months and then she's like no uh, not months with weeks and then they get more data from ian home and he's like no 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 maybe days and then like you know they're getting data from the the astronauts and it's like oh no 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 like you, you got like a couple of hours you know it's like um so it's one of those things of that also is not in incorrect because if you listen to climate scientists they do keep saying you know well we had been optimistic in the fact that when we warned people you know governments and corporations and, and all that what what you are doing and allowing to happen is leading to some horrible effects that they would listen and maybe stop or slow down or reverse course and that didn't happen and so now it's speeding up 
And that was the thing we didn't really plan for. And so now we've had to revise that and revise it again and revise it again, you know? It's like, you know, the the average Joe, you want to do something and then you say, well, I'm not going to do it. That's a problem for future me. Well, future you is coming up faster than you think it is. And here we are. Yeah. So I do like the idea of it's coming faster than you think. Uh, the problem is, is that in some ways I wish it were a bit more of a metaphor. You know, when you do a movie like recently we had Don't Look Up and they used the asteroid in that as a metaphor for things like climate change. And so, yes, in there, it's using a kind of the Armageddon scenario, you know, where it's slightly unrealistic on the science, but it's because it's a it's a metaphorical scenario. It's a satire. So I wish almost in a way that a movie like this was using some kind of metaphorical scenario, but I think presenting it as like th this this is sort of a thing that could happen, you know is a bit problematic because then you have people going like, well, if it's not the day after tomorrow scenario, we've got time. And that was what I was saying earlier. There's people, you know, because of the way this film was presenting it, it kind of made people kind of see it as a, even more of a joke than they had already had seen it. Yeah. And the, the thing is, is that sadly, the the human mind does have an ability to put things off. It's it's a problem for future me, you know. We're we do a lot of procrastinating sometimes. And so the idea, you know, we talked about it last time in Armageddon that, you know, we we do the 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 Armageddon version of that, you know, what if an asteroid is coming is, okay, well, you put a nuclear bomb and you break it apart and at the last second it splits and it goes around the Earth and it's like a big fiery show. But the real world version of that that we just tested is you send a rocket out there, you crash it into a thing, it nudges it a little bit and, you know, in six or seven months you've deflected it enough that it never comes near us at all, and it floats harmlessly past. But that doesn't make a good movie. But that's, yeah, that's not a, you know, that's a bunch of people sitting in a room going, and we've made contact, yay! All right, good job, everybody. We're we're safe. Like that's it's not it's not really that that compelling, and that's that's the thing. Um. People talk about, um, I, I watched a video recently uh, where somebody had gone back over the Y2K computer glitch. If you're old enough to remember that, where everybody was saying like, oh, when the Y2K computer glitch happens, when it's falling out of the sky, you know, everything's going to, you know, catch on fire and people are going to run around screaming and things are going to everything's going to, you know, just 
go absolutely haywire. And then the thing is, is that when that rollover happened, you know, when midnight hit, nothing happened. I mean, there were some minor glitches and some minor systems, but none of the catastrophic events that were predicted occurred. And that was because what most people, I think, to this day still don't realize is that around the world, and especially in the U.S., we mobilized a large force of computer code people to fix those systems. And so they worked for years to fix those systems and roll out new software that could handle the glitch. So when the, you know, 1999, 2000, you know, Y2K rollover happened, the software patch had already been rolled out and the new computers could handle it. And we did that slowly and steadily over the course of several years to the point now that everybody says, hey, remember the Y2K hoax when everybody thought that was a problem and it was going to cause massive system failure? They think it was a hoax now. But it wasn't. It was a massive problem. And if it had been left to go then yeah, probably a lot of that stuff that was predicted to happen might have happened. Not in that catastrophic, like, oh, it's a grand disaster movie. But yeah, a lot of systems would have kind of crashed and burned. I mean, people were kind of using it in relation to to COVID. It's like, yeah, the reason Y2K didn't happen was because we had the smart people. We listened to the smart people, and the smart people made sure it didn't happen. And then... Well, why didn't they do this for the pandemic? Well, well, they had a plan, and then they threw out the plan saying we would never need it. Uh-oh, pandemic. We we didn't listen to the scientists. And what happens yeah. when you don't listen to the scientists? You know, it's like, well, all right. You know, if, we, if we'd been kind of planning slowly and steadily over the years, then that it would have been... I'm not saying a complete non-issue, but... Wouldn't have been as bad as it ended up being in real life. Yeah. And that's the thing, is that human brains are geared to really want to be like, oh, well, what, what happens when there's a tiger attack and you need to run from the tiger? And not just like, you know, probably the thing I'm going to have to deal with is the mundane, everyday... You know, I got to get up, I got to do laundry, I got to, you know, do my dishes, I got to, you know, our brains aren't really wired for that kind of just everyday plodding along and whatever, because evolutionarily, we kind of had to deal with what happens if the saber-toothed tiger jumps out and attacks. I mean, everyone had their, their, you know, people were expecting the zombie apocalypse. And when it was just not that they didn't understand the severity of it or didn't or thought it was a hoax. Yeah. And the the thing is, is that if you plan enough for and I plan a lot of logistic events. I, I do. I, I I plan a lot of 
of events where, you know, you have to get people together and you have to make sure everything runs on time and people are where they need to be. And so I deal with a lot of contingency plans. And so I'm constantly saying in meetings, what do we do if this doesn't happen or if this falls apart or if that and I bring up these scenarios, you know, what if we need this thing or that doesn't show up or whatever. And I'm constantly hearing after events, you know, that, oh, weren't you such a worry wart? See, things, things went just fine. And I always have to stop myself from going, yeah, but they went just fine because I had that plan in place. Like, you think that everything just happened, but you don't see that it happened, you know? You think the train just got from A to B because that's just what trains do, but the train got from A to B because I laid out the track and I made sure there was a conductor <laughs> and I made sure that we had enough fuel to get us from A to B like but in your brain like well trains of course they go from A to B that's just how a train works you know it's like because you've never seen how that functions you know and so I think that that's how people constantly look at big issues like climate change or things like pandemics or how government bureaucracies work. Pick any large system. If you only ever see it running smoothly, when things start to fall apart, you know, you you think about the thing of like in in the towering inferno, you know? You you think about like well, what happens in the most catastrophic thing, and we pointed out in the Towering Inferno, it would have never become a catastrophe if you'd have left all the small systems in place. You know, the architect had built multiple redundant systems in, in the Towering Inferno. In Poseidon Adventure, the Poseidon probably would have been able to deal with that tsunami. If they were allowed to put if, on enough ballast. Yeah, if they if they had, had enough ballast in there, and if they had been running at slower speed, they possibly would have been able to survive that tsunami. Or they would have been at a different spot in the ocean, and they wouldn't have been there when the tsunami hit. Either or. So you, so, so what you're saying is that the real enemy is, bu is bureaucracy. <laughs> No, I'm saying that, well, no, well, yeah, that too. Um, but I'm saying that sometimes, you know, just having a plan and having redundant systems is, is there. But the human brain always wants, and this is the thing about disaster films. The reason disaster films are so compelling, and they're compelling to me, which is why I wanted to do this disaster film month, Right. It's the reason why zombie films are so compelling. Um, uh, spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> but it's the reason why, you know, all of all of these things are grip our brain is because we want to know what would we do in the catastrophic scenario. But I am also the type of person 
that loves to plan. And the reason I love a catastrophic scenario movie, like disaster movies, is I love looking at these things and going, okay, how do I never end up there? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, where are all the steps where they could have prevented ever being anywhere near this scenario? Not what would I do if I were in that scenario, but how do I make sure I'm never in that scenario in the first place? How do I make sure I'm never in the Towering Inferno? How do I make sure I'm never in the Poseidon Adventure? How do I make sure, you know... We don't the, end up in the day after tomorrow or whatever. And that's the thing is that that's how you would think. And that's smart. But most people thinking like that is boring. They want to think, what if I was in an, in an action movie and I get to be John McClane? I also think that, too, because there are some things you just can't plan on. Yeah. But I just I just love planning. I'm that kind of nerd. I'm that kind of like. What would I do in any given scenario? So I I think that that's what compels me about these films. Because as we've proven over and over again, as we talk about these films, they are not good. I'm, I don't think that there's a disaster film ever made that's probably a good movie. I'm I'm not sure I can really think of one in the genre that's probably like both a good disaster movie and a good like movie movie. I don't know. Um Poseidon Adventure kind of comes close in the fact that you you like the characters. Um and if you if you want to call some like I really do like the um like some of the the original Godzilla for instance you know but there's not a lot of ones that are in the disaster film genre that I would just be like this holds up just as a film maybe I mean, do you want to call something like Jurassic Park a disaster movie? I don't know. I would call that more like a creature feature. I don't know. If Godzilla counts, maybe Jurassic Park does too. And that I would I would probably say like, okay, you know, you can you can maybe call that a disaster movie. But I don't really I don't really think of that. I think of disasters disaster movies as more fighting the elements or fighting the environment rather than fighting a creature but who knows i mean we we haven't gone we haven't gone through the film so have you noticed that we haven't even gone to the plot the actual actual plot of this movie because it's not a lot of it (laughs) yeah i mean the the main plot is jake gyllenhaal is is in love with Emmy Rossum and he's on the debate team because he has a crush on her and they're stuck in New York. That's the plot. That is oh, the and they're plot stuck in New Snoop. they're stuck in New York and his dad has to go get him because he's stuck in New York. So yeah. home like, alone. Home oh my this movie's home alone. Are the wolves the 
are the wolves the uh, intruders or is the ice the intruder? Yes. Both. Yes, both. <laughs> the 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 funniest scene and the ones that scientists like to make fun of the most is the the running away from the ice scene. Because there is there is the point where they, they make Jake Gyllenhaal run away from ice because oh, yeah. you the, have that, that the, the quick flash freeze. freezing. Yeah. Yeah. Where close the, close the door before the freezing gets us. Yes, because cold can't come through doors. That's how doors work. Of course, the funniest thing to me is that they're in the library and they are in a room with the, just the most gigantic windows. At least two walls of this room are just covered with like two-story windows. But that's the room with the fireplace. <laughs> well, no, but it is the room with the fireplace. And I'm not saying they're wrong to be in that room necessarily, but they don't try to cover the glass or reinforce the, the windows in any way. Closing that one door, that's what keeps the cold out. And I'm like, do you, you know how hard it is to insulate a window. Come on. This is the, come on. But yeah, I, I don't know. And I, I'm also like, okay, I get that, that you've got the fire burning and everything, but that's that's a chimney. And I know that they're like, quick, don't let the fire go out. Don't let the fire go out and everything. But like, come on. And then you get the, the, the subplot of the jealousy because there's like another another debate team member that Emmy Rosen looks to have a crush on. And well, Jake he's Dillon, the rich boy. Yeah. Jake Dillon Jake has the opportunity to leave, but he does it because he doesn't want to leave Emmy Rossum alone with the rich boy because he's in love with her, you see. <laughs> yeah, and the thing that, that I always find kind of the the dumbest thing is they're trying to get out of town. They know that it's flooded and that the trains aren't moving. And they're like, well, we could stay here in this nice lush apartment way, way, way above the water with all the food and like presumably fireplace and, you know, heat and everything. Um, I granted, they don't know what's coming at that point, but it's like no, we could <laughs> no, we have to get home. It's like no, we have to get home. They're like, well, my driver is gonna be, and I'm like, it's so flooded, trains can't move. What do you think your driver is gonna do in your posh little car? Like, again, because Jake Gyllenhaal doesn't want to leave his love interest girl he has a crush on with the rich boy. That's the entire plot of this. He doesn't want okay, to leave her alone. Okay, but stay with the rich there. Boy. With the, the rich boy. Like, convince the rich boy to stay there. But that's the thing, is that he's not the bad guy. Like, like you would think in, in this kind of scenario that the rich boy would be the asshole, but he's not. Yeah, he he's, just, he's just a rich boy. Like He's talking about, I have to find my brother, who's in Philadelphia. My dad is across the country with my stepmom. I never see him. No, he's they're in Europe, so they're dead. He says that they're in Europe on a skiing trip. Mm -hmm. He says that his his dad and his stepmom are in Europe right now on a skiing trip. So they are dead. All of Europe is dead. I don't know if you get that in the movie, but all of Europe is dead. 
it's pretty clear in the movie that all of Europe has frozen to death. It's it's not like specifically stated, but uh, except for the ones that were close enough, like like I'm I'm pretty sure that this is how the geography is going to work out. You know, with the the geography of Europe here, because of the way that line works out. The way the contiguous United States works is like if you can, if you can keep on walking and stuff, you can get below that line. But when he draws that line, if you kind of just keep following that line and where the the ice ends up at the end of the movie, Europe is dead. Like We've... all all of Europe is super duper dead, except for like maybe a little bit at like the bottom of Italy. And anybody who could maybe very quickly get across into northern Africa before everything froze. <laughs> I mean, we we get that scene with Ian Holm and his team having that one last drink together before they freeze to death. Yeah, before the generator cuts out and they, they freeze to death, um, they're just like, well, you know, here's to the queen or whatever. <laughs> they die. Um, here's to Manchester United. <laughs> yeah, it's like, sure, whatever. And uh, they're all like, the, the weird thing is, is that they're they're all like, you know, I wish I could see my kids grow up. And they're like, yeah, but the thing is, they will grow up. And I was like, did they get? evacuated and I missed it they must have at some point in the movie that said that like their kids got out or something or, or grandkids because other than that like they're they're super dead too because they know by that point how bad the storm is and what's going to happen Um, so it, there must have been like a bit that I missed in the rewatch that said that their kids were going to be okay the thing is, though, is that it's kind of interesting because the geopolitics of of this world after this movie, because they're they're dealing mostly with America, because that's tends to be what these movies do. They're focusing in this movie specifically just on what happens with America, but. When you see that ice line form and how quickly it formed and they're like, well, you know, move everybody south and stuff, depending on how quickly people were able to evacuate and how easily they were able to get into the countries south of that line um, or how many of them survived and would be able to migrate south after that snap freeze. Because we see at the end of the movie, you know, when when Jake Gyllenhaal's little group is is rescued, that there are people in New York other than Jake Gyllenhaal's party that were able to survive in some of the skyscrapers, uh, which is maybe why you should have stayed in the posh apartment of the rich dude. Just saying, maybe, Jake. And, um, and, and, and again, the fact that the posh rich dude turned out to actually be a decent dude just made the whole thing pointless. Like, he's not there to steal your girl. He's actually, a, you know, a nice dude who just wants to see if his brother's still alive. Yeah, your girl almost died there, Jake, because you made them all go out of the, like, just, you should have just stayed in the, in the room there and 
been like, hey, what, can we just stay here for like a, a little bit and like use your phone? You can have your doorman kick us out in like a couple of hours if we don't, you know, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could have done that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's going to be like a fascinating kind of geopolitical scenario afterwards because it's wiped out like all of Europe, most pretty much all of like Russia, most of China. Uh it's I mean, it really is. It's like most of the the northern hemisphere is just gone. All so, of the U.S., all of North America, north of Mexico is frozen. Well, so, I mean, not all of it. It's kind of basically everything above roughly the Mason-Dixon line is hard frozen, and it it kind of dips below that um, a little bit in the, that it's probably cold-ish, but not too cold to survive. The scene of people, they, again, no subtlety. They straight up saying Americans are illegally going into Mexico. <laughs> yeah. And and they say that Mexico only starts letting them in when the U.S. forgives, quote unquote, all Latin American debt, which is really fascinating because that's that, that wouldn't just be like Mexico's debt. That would be like. A lot of countries, so... The average American thinks it's all Mexico anyway, which is dumb. Well, I mean, maybe, but it's it's kind of fascinating. And then, also, though, most of America just got devastated, so I'm not really sure that America, uh, that the U.S. really was going to be in a, a place. I mean, let's just face it, Canada's gone I'm not sure yeah. if anybody made it out of Canada. Like, poor Canada. The, the movie doesn't even touch upon that. Yeah, like, nobody nobody even mentions Canada at any point in this movie, I don't think. We get the United States, the UK, and Mexico. Yeah, a, a couple of other countries are vaguely mentioned. I, I mean, they mention India because they're they're in Delhi for the, the conference. Um, and, uh, they mentioned Japan, and then, of course, you know, we've got the, you know, the, in Scotland and, and everything, because we, we're dealing with Ian Holmes' group and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I, I feel really bad. Also, I'm not sure that, that the astronauts know what North America is, because when the storms start clearing up, they, they signal up to the the space station and they're like hey we've got uh ideas that the uh storms are clearing over north america can you confirm and they look out the window and they go yeah we can confirm that while looking down at italy and i'm yeah. like um that's not what we asked you or either that or you're completely ignorant of geography maybe <laughs> but Either way, you guys are stuck up there for a while. <laughs> yeah, because the two major countries that can get you down from there have just been... Like, I don't remember what the 
well, or three, because China had been sending some people up there, but China, Russia, and the U.S. have all been absolutely devastated by this storm. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of mostly your way back, depending. So, I mean, you know, Florida and, and Texas are not in the freeze zone, so, but still... The U.S. is not really working at full capacity at the moment, so <laughs> you're going to be stuck there for a while. I hope you have enough supplies. I hope you're enjoying those clear skies and that view that you're going, you know, ooh over at the end of the movie. Um, I've never seen the sky so clear and everything's frozen. <laughs> yeah, like... I mean that yeah that does tend to happen after a hard freeze but um also you are screwed cuz you are now <laughs> stuck in in the space station and nobody's coming to get you for a while this this is such an odd movie politically scientifically in the lack of plot I mean, I'm happy the dog survives. Oh yeah, the the we we haven't even gotten to the homeless man with the dog. Yeah, I mean, I I hate that they kind of do the like herder he's a homeless man jokes, but also there is kind of a weird thing where his knowledge does occasionally prove useful. Yeah, he he, met, he even says. He knows how to survive in the cold with little resources. Yeah, he he does tell them occasionally, like, how to insulate using, you know, scraps of paper and how, you know, various places to find things. And, Food. You know, he's I mean, he's not he's not wrong in what he says uh, most of the time. And the fact that he's standing outside in the storm at the beginning because the guy won't let him in with the dog. And I kind of want to go like, dude, it is a massive weather event. Just let the guy with the dog in. Stop being a jerk. And in then, the, in the face of a climate disaster, classism still exists. Well, yeah. it And, and it, it will the other thing that I kind of hate about the group in the library is that there, there's the the one little thing about the the thing where they have to go in the library and they're looking in the like we need to find the fireplace and all for warmth because we know you know uh, Jake Gyllenhaal kind of knows what's coming because he talks to his dad you know and gets all the information about what's coming and what they need to do to survive. And so they go, the group that chooses to believe him when he says, Hey, my dad's a client, climate scientist with the government. And he told me what to expect and you shouldn't go out there. So the ones that listen to reason and stay with him, go and find the fireplace and they clear it out and they prepare to hunker down and survive and then Jake Gyllenhaal's like, all right, bring me books. And we've got to, you know, put them in here and start burning them. And the librarian's like, you can't burn books. That's not. And he's like, what did you think we were going to burn? We're in a library. That is the source of fuel. And she's like, no, but books are sacred. And he's like, this is survival. You know, 
And there's this whole through line in the movie where, like, the the little stuck-up librarian woman keeps going, like, you can't burn b- books, and, you know, books are good for something other than burning. And I'm like, you are stuck in a room with a whole bunch of nerds who are only in New York because they are nerdy, academic, decathlon people. I mean, there's even one it, scene where one of the nerd guys actually is trying to get things going. It's like, I have this, I have this, this, and this, this. There's no bigger nerd in this building than me. We're, we're doing this. <laughs> yeah, and and all, and I'm thinking, like, woman, you're, yes, you're in a library, and yes, under normal circumstances, you know, nobody's wanting to burn books. But it's not like you're just in the room full of cretins who are like, hi, we came in here to burn books because we don't like what they said. It's like, no, just find books that are like, you know, pulp paperbacks that probably exist in mass in every, you know. And there's and even the jokes they, about they, like, oh, tax law and whatever. And, you know, we're not asking to burn the rare book collection that only exists in this one thing. Just, you know, find the things that like even the library has tons of volumes of that are mass produced everywhere. No, nobody's really going to be burning that unless it's literally the last source of fuel in the library, dude. It's fine. The movie suddenly acts like these kids who are massive nerds who read all the time for fun, that sort of thing, are just suddenly going to be going through the library being like, yay, destroy books just because we can't, like... No, this is an extreme situation. You would, you know, here's all the random, you know, romance novels or something. There's 700 billion of these and they're printed, you know, by the hundreds and they exist everywhere. You know, like, it's fine. You know, there's there's more. Every library has hundreds of copies of these. It's okay, you know? Or just grab all the printer paper out of the printers and stuff, you know, like do all that before you even get to the books, you know, it's like, there's always just spare paper in a library, you know? Uh, yeah. It's, it's so bizarre, you know, burn the, the copies of today's periodicals, yesterday's periodicals, you know, they're, they're going to be, you know, all kinds of stuff before you get to the rare book collection at the New York library. <laughs> it's so bizarre that Roland wants to make this point about how dare we burn books that he doesn't even think of like, what else is in a library other than the rare book collection? This preachy point of the written word was mankind's greatest achievement. And and then and then they make the point of specifically Western civilization as if no other civilization had recorded text. Like, are you kidding me? I see you, Roland. I see you. I see you. Uh, I think the only other plot point we haven't even touched on is uh, Sella Ward's plot point with young Peter the Cancer Child. This is young yeah, boy. Every, everyone else abandons the hospital and Sela Ward has to 
stay and care for him because his parents haven't come for him. Presumably, they've like died in there's the this storm one, or something. There's this, there's this one line where oh, it was in the hubbub, everyone left. Like, wait, so you're telling me that these boys, that this boy's parents just left the hospital without their son? That's what you're telling me, movie. That in this in the hubbub of everything happening, they just left. Well, the thing is, we never see the kids' parents, and yeah, in the in the in never in, in the, the movie at all. In the movie, and the thing is, is that like, I'm not saying that there would never be a time of day when a, a child patient would be left alone by their parents in a in a ward like that. But, like, usually with kids like that, there's generally a family member hanging around at some point. I'm not saying 24-7, because, yeah, a lot of families, that they have to work, and, you know, the, the parents would go away to work, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that, Maybe the parents were like, hey, we're going to go home and get some stuff or, you know, they were away at work or whatever. And we only ever see the kid at times when the parents have had to be at work or had to be at, you know, something else and nobody from the family was staying with the kid. But I, I guess that when they're like, oh, you know, maybe the when they said the parents never came for him, I've always given the movie the the benefit of the doubt that like the parents were killed in the storm trying to get back. That would at least that would make it better. But there's always the possibility that maybe the parents were like, "Hey, we're never going to make it down to the evacuation zone if we have to drag our kid with us," and just skipped. Which would make them awful. But the way the movie does it is that basically all of the staff of the hospital just left. You know, when the evacuation was called, all of the the people in the hospital just left. And the only two people left are... Cela Ward and this kid and one nurse who informed Cela Ward like his parents never came back and I called for an ambulance and the ambulance never showed up and there's one cop left with a, a snowplow he's here to take us and she's like but the, the kid is so sick he can only be transported in an ambulance you go nurse I'll stay with the, the kid you know and we'll just wait and hope somebody comes for us because I am Cela Ward and I am good and holy and I will stay here and take care of this kid, you know? And and that, they end up okay because at the, at, right at the end of the movie there's, you see a guy, hey, we heard some people were left behind, we got an ambulance. <laughs> yeah, eventually an ambulance comes for them before the storm does, but they are eventually rescued. But yeah, that's like, you know, Cela Ward and this poor kid, they're, they're eventually taken down to texas or wherever i have i have never i i was i was not quite clear on where they started the movie 
I thought it would be Los Angeles. No, I don't. I don't remember if it was because, like, his dad kept saying, like, I'll come get you. I've walked farther than that. And the mother was hugging him by and go get our son. So maybe D.C.? Possibly. I mean, he, he does work for the government, so it's possible. Yeah. And and also, I'm I'm thinking maybe D.C., um, but I, I couldn't. I, I'm thinking that it was somewhere that was. For them to be able to drive an ambulance out there, I I think it was uh, somewhere that was just low enough on the line that it was in danger, but not low enough on the line that it got the quick freeze. You know, we we get we get you know all kinds of horrible things of them walking through. You know, the, you know, Jack walking through the storm to go get his son and his friend that sacrifices himself because he falls through a mall skylight. Because <laughs> they don't realize that the mall is underneath them because of all the snow has piled up and they're walking over buildings now. His friend sacrifices himself so that the other two guys won't fall through the the glass. And then, of course, we have the, the absolute craziness of that giant Russian cargo ship that floats through the streets of Manhattan and ends up right outside the library. And all I can think of is there is no way that it has navigated by itself the narrow streets of Manhattan. <laughs> Deus ex, Deus ex Botica. <laughs> yeah, with, without uh, without just crashing through a building or getting wedged somewhere or or capsizing in that wave. Yeah. Like, how is this boat still right side up after that wave? Because yeah. that tidal wave overturned everything and you're telling me that that cargo ship is still right side up. I don't know. But you know, um, it conveniently has supplies and medicine that they need. Also, how does how does uh, Dennis Quaid not just wander in and be like, "By the way, we saw some flash frozen wolves right outside the door." Is anybody going to explain that? <laughs> <laughs> because the wolves have chased them back. Like we hear the wolves barking as they're closing the door. And that was during the flash freeze. So you know that those wolves were chasing them and then got flash freeze. Um, so there, there is flash frozen wolf like somewhere in, in a statue pose. Like, and I'm kind of mad at the movie for not ever showing us that. Also, Roland Emmerich doesn't know how big wolves are. He's, yeah, I mean, the, the CG on the wolves are not that good. Well, also, like, they're really tiny. They're dog-sized, and I don't know if you've ever seen video of a, a wolf next to an actual human, but wolves are huge. So, like, however big you you think a wolf is, they're, they're bigger than that. Um, they are not dog-sized. They are very, very large. Um, they, they, are, they are not the size of your, your puppy or your German Shepherd. They 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 are massive. 
And so if you've ever only seen them, you know, from a distance or like in a photograph or whatever, go go look up video of like people who work with wolves in, you know, like a rehab place. They are massive. So uh, that's that's my thing is whenever they they do like wolves in films, a lot of people do not understand the the relative size between a human and a wolf. Um, so this this movie definitely does not because it looks like he's being attacked by like you know a, a german shepherd sized dog and whatever i'm like that is not that is not what a wolf looks like uh yeah so uh let i don't think we can really talk any more about this movie than we've already have so let's ask the question kiki does the day after tomorrow have the magic Oh, it's a it's a mess. No, no, no. The the reason I wanted to talk about this, I mean, for hold on. Let me let me ask you the same question though. Does do you think it has magic? Uh, I think <laughs> I think if it was a better written film, maybe. But it 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 like a lot of these. Uh, like a lot of these uh, disaster movies, it makes a nice spectacle. It's popcorn fodder. It's a, it's something to entertain yourself for a few hours. But is this going to go on my rewatch pile? No. So I'll say no. <laughs> the reason I wanted to talk about this one in finishing the, the month is that when we talked about the disaster genre kind of hit its big stride and then the towering inferno in the seventies and all, but we never really talked about kind of how it dipped in the seventies and went into its kind of, you know, sleeping phase throughout the eighties and stuff. And then it had its resurgence in the late nineties and early two thousands. And then the reason why I kind of wanted to talk about this movie was this movie was kind of one of the death knells I thought of that resurgence because when this movie came out I remember everyone just ripping this apart people even though Armageddon wasn't a good movie people liked it like it's it's a good popcorn movie this one has good special effects, but it's not a fun movie. It's not a slog. Like, you don't sit there and go like, oh my god, I'd rather be watching anything else. But it's just, it's not fun. It's not a horrible film. It's just kind of cinematic wallpaper. You know, this is one of the few times where we're talking about a movie and we ended up talking about basically everything but the movie. Because there's not a lot of substance in the here. The storyline is very simplistic, which I understand you kind of, that's not the point. The point is the spectacle. The point is the special effects. It's Considering this is early 2000s, the, the CG, the star power in, in Dennis Quaid, that's what you're selling this movie on. You're not selling this movie on the story. And I think at that point, people were kind of tired of it. Kind of wanted something a little bit more meat on the bones, I suppose. Yeah, but, you know, it's it's one of those things of... I mean, Roland definitely isn't done with the genre as far as disaster is a genre. 
because he keeps doing disaster as a genre even though people aren't really into it yet you know i mean uh, into it still because like you said he did 2012 after this he did uh another independence day movie to try to get that back and just this year as we're recording this he did a movie called moonfall which i mean basically nobody saw which is the conspiracy theory of like what if the moon was evil and attacked us yeah i played that game it's called legend of zelda <laughs> it's kind of the anti-pixar thing it's like what if blank had feelings and roland's like you know what if blank was a conspiracy that is trying to kill us all but I just, I don't think people are really into it any anymore, you know? It's not, it's not where we're, where we're at. The 2012 did kind of okay because I think we were still in the kind of like, oh, you know, a, a spectacle of things, but... But it's like Independence Day came out in 2016, and I don't know if you remember 2016, but that was a crap year. It was a year that was so crap, we were like, well, this is going to go down as the crappiest year. And then it just kind of kept getting worse from there. Yeah. And I think by now we're all like, wow, we've got actual problems to worry about. We don't really need to see disaster films, you know? We're living in one. Yeah, we're we're living in the disaster film. And even if, you know, I mean, we're talking, this is a movie about climate change and dealing with climate change and stuff. And what if the Earth froze or at least part of the Earth froze? And I'm not saying that we're over that idea because we got a much better version of that idea later with the movie Snowpiercer that then became the TV show Snowpiercer and both of those are excellent they're kind of two different versions of the same idea and based on a graphic novel and I love both of those and while you can say like well the science is slightly suspect in that it's a lot better than what Roland is doing but it deals more with the, like, okay, the worst happened, and what do we do to rebuild after that? Which, which is a bit of a different story, you know? Uh, I don't think Roland understands the, how do you rebuild after that? I think he's just into the spectacle of run away from the danger. All right, so, Yeah. So let's let's move on to next week. Um, listeners might remember last month when we had our good friend Jeff Whitmire on, and his request is actually going to be next week's episode, as he requested 28 days later. So technically, we have one more disaster as we're dealing with the zombie apocalypse. Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll we'll get to we'll get to the fine line distinction of that next week. <laughs> so, 
So come back for that, and we will talk to you all next time. Bye. Bye. If you want to help the fight for human rights in the U.S., the American Civil Liberties Union works to protect constitutional rights for all Americans. Their website is aclu.org. If you need reproductive services in the U.S. or wish to donate to those who do, go to abortionfunds.org for more info. The battle isn't over until the last person surrenders. The fight continues. Don't let the magic stop here. Join our conversation online on Facebook at Rewatching the Magic. Twitter at Rewatch the Magic. And of course, new episodes every week at rewatchingthemagic.podbean.com. Remember, the magic is for everyone. It only stops if you let it.